measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. And it can tell us everything about America, except why we are proud that we are Americans. That's Robert F. Kennedy, U.S. Senator from New York and presidential candidate in 1968. That is a sound clip from a speech he made during the presidential campaign. I will play that speech in its entirety on this edition of Voices of Experience. Welcome to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. Fifty years ago today, Robert Kennedy was shot in the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles just moments after celebrating his primary win in California. I am not going to spend any time discussing conspiracy theories or how good a president he might have been had he lived. All I want to do is call out what I believe to be one of the greatest speeches of the 20th century. It's called Measure of a Nation. The speech is a little over two minutes long, but it packs a very powerful punch. The sound quality is a little shaky, but I think you will be able to understand the words. Senator Robert F. Kennedy. Too much and for too long, we seem to have surrendered personal excellence and community value in the mere accumulation of material things. Our gross national product now is over $800 billion a year. But that gross national product if we judge the United States of America by that, that gross national product counts air pollution and cigarette advertising and ambulances to clear our highways of carnage. It counts special locks for our doors and the jails for the people who break them. It counts the destruction of the redwoods and the loss of our natural wonder and chaotic sprawl. It counts napalm and it counts nuclear warheads and armored cars for the police to fight the riots in our cities. It counts Whitman's rifles and sex knives and the television programs which glorify violence in order to sell toys to our children. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. And it can tell us everything about America, except why we are proud that we are Americans. Now, what Robert Kennedy was trying to do is to ask the nation to consider not our wealth, but what we value. When he said the gross national product tells us everything about America, except why we are proud that we are Americans. I don't know how great a president Robert Kennedy would have been or if he would have even been nominated. But there are a number of people, including myself, who believe the trajectory of this country 
would have been much different if he had been elected president. Like no one else during that time and even today, he appealed to a very diverse group, African-Americans, labor and corporate leaders, the old, the young, the rich, and the poor. Why? Because people trusted him and he offered hope. We could sure use some of that trust and hope today. I'm going off script because I didn't think it was possible for this administration to get any lower than it did yesterday when the former mayor of New York, Rudolph Giuliani, suggested that the president could murder a former FBI director in the Oval Office and not get prosecuted. Think about this for a moment. This is the very same office which George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, and most recently, President Obama shared. Of all the corruption, lies, distortions, race baiting, divisiveness that has been thrown at this country from this administration, this goes to the head of the class. I wonder what Robert Kennedy would have thought if he were around today. Shame on you, Rudolph Giuliani, and to all the people who continue to support this president and the people around him. Also joining us today, Peter Shankman, founder of an online company called Harrow, or Help a Reporter Out. And broadcast legend Shirley Tom will join us a little later, and she has just written a book on self-employment. We'll end the show with a clip from Bill Maher's New Rules. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Peter Shankman is our guest, and Peter was a senior news editor with AOL, but then started his own online company called Help a Reporter Out, which linked reporters and experts in particular fields in a quick and easy way. It was a very successful venture, and he was able to sell the business to Focus in 2010. He's gone on to speak and become an author of several books, but one of his things he talks about frequently is the advantages of having attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. He has appeared on numerous TED Talks as well. It appeared that Peter was headed towards the world of performing arts, but veered in a different direction. I asked him why. Well, you know, for me, I went to high school with people like Marlon Wayans, Omar Epps, and Jennifer Aniston. And, you know, for every Jennifer Aniston, there's three years of students who go on to live a regular life. And I realized that while I enjoyed the performing arts, I didn't want to have to make a living at it and wind up hating it. So what was it about performing arts that you didn't like? I loved performing arts. I just didn't want to have to worry about making a living at it and potentially failing and the rejection that comes with it. And that would wind up turning into hating the industry. If you do something you love 
and it doesn't work for you, you wind up hating it. And I didn't want to hate performing arts. I still love performing. And I've been fortunate that I've been able to turn my career into a way that I can perform pretty much all the time now, you know, whether I'm giving a corporate speech or going on television or whatever, and uh, still get to uh, have fun with that. Of course, it's kind of like uh, I caution people sometimes about when they say, follow your passion and the money will follow. I kind of say, not necessarily. Exactly. Now, you shifted then into journalism when you became uh, the senior news editor for AOL. How did that happen? Oh, I got very lucky. I was actually, it uh, wasn't planned. I was hanging out in the uh, chat room uh, of the TV show Melrose Place in America Online back when AOL was the internet. And uh, I had just left graduate school, so I had um, pretty much nothing to do. And um, a uh, friend of mine in that chat room said, you know, my company's trying to build a newsroom. You have a journalism degree. Why don't you submit your resume? And two weeks later, I was hired at America Online, and I helped become one of the founding editors. I became one of the founding editors of the newsroom, and it was it was an amazing experience. You know, AOL was the internet at the time. There was uh, It was pretty incredible. And I got very, very fortunate. I learned a ton from Steve Case, Ted Leonsis, people like that, and really just had an amazing time, amazing experience, and learned so much. So very fortunate that I was able to do that and uh, use that to my advantage. I stayed at AOL for about uh, two and a half, three years. AOL, when it came out, per se, was an Internet provider. And was it really constructed to go into news at that time? Or did sometimes Steve Case go, hey, why don't we do this? I think the newsroom was one of those things that, um, you know, existed. At the beginning, I believe it was just copied feeds from the Associated Press. We were able to actually create a full-on newsroom where we did reporting and, and things of that nature. That changed a lot of things. And then from that, you took the next step and went out, I believe, on your own, Help a Reporter Out. Tell us about that. If we fast forward to around 2007, I launched Help a Reporter Out just from having run a PR firm for several years and uh, you know knowing tons of journalists and talking to everyone. I got very lucky in the respect that I figured out a way to turn that into something that everyone could use. So... My premise was there are tons of journalists looking for sources. There are tons of sources who want to be quoted in the media. Why is there nothing that connects the two? And so I decided to launch a service called Harrow that created a way for journalists to find sources and sources to find journalists. Because of that, I was able to build this service that people used and used it uh, pretty religiously. It went from an idea with me and my apartment to uh, about half a million people using it in just about two and a half, three years. It was pretty incredible. The news that we're getting now, it's just much more unreliable. And it seems to me even what you did is more pertinent today than it was even when you developed it. I'm rather proud of it. I would be too. That's, that's an amazing accomplishment. You have ADHD. And when I was reading your profile and looking at it, it's something that people don't talk about a lot. But you talk about it very proud in the sense that you can use that to your advantage. Can you explain that and elaborate on that a little bit? Normal brains drip out dopamine, serotonin, and adrenaline as needed, uh, usually when you have to do something boring, like, hey, I have to uh, write that TPS report or do my expense report, or, or when you have some sort of emergency or crisis, like, hey, there's a, a mountain lion chasing me, I should probably run away. When you are ADHD, your body does not create the same amount of dopamine, serotonin, and adrenaline as a normal person would which is why a lot of times we have a lot of hard, we have a hard time focusing. Uh, I, I run marathons and Ironman triathlons, things like that. It, it wasn't so much that I was doing those. They, 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 they all had a common reason I was doing those, which is essentially I was looking for those chemicals. When you fall out of a plane and you land safely, your body is full of dopamine, serotonin, and adrenaline. And those three things um, are the focus chemicals. So I learned that if I do a skydive, I land, I go, I drop my... I, take my parachute off and throw it in a corner, I can then sit down and write five, 10,000 words in an hour. And so my most productive time comes from when I am high on those chemicals, as it were. So 
because of that, I realized that there had to be other people who did that. I wonder if there is a sort of a, a connection between that and entrepreneurship. Sure enough, there is. And so I launched a podcast called Faster Than Normal, where we've interviewed people such as Tony Robbins, people who have ADHD and who have realized that it is a benefit. From that, uh, Random House reached out and said, hey, would you like to write a book? And so Faster Than Normal, the book actually came out yesterday, October 3rd, and it is it was number one in all three categories in which it was listed on Amazon. It's doing very, very well, and um, I, I couldn't be happier. I'm very, I'm very fortunate that I'm able to help a lot of people. You also wrote a book called Zombie Loyalists, using great service to create rabid fans. Yeah, I mean, the basic premise behind that concept is that in any customer interaction, we expect to be treated like crap. We don't really expect to be treated well. Uh, we expect for a poor interaction. We expect them to screw up our order or whatever it is we're looking for. I don't need people to be amazing. I don't need them to be over-the-top incredible. I just need them to be a little bit better than what we expect. But because our expectations are so low, if we can train our customers and major companies to just be a little bit better than essentially crap, uh, we can own the entire game. Exactly. Well, you know, one of the things I wrote a book recently called Pre-Flight Checklist is self-employment for you. And one of the points I make in the book is about the airlines and how incredible they really are that they move millions of people literally, and they really are the safest form of transportation. When I get into rent a car, then my experience goes down. And when I rent a car, I don't care what the agency is, I am so pleased when there's not something that goes wrong. Either the price is too high, the car's dirty, they treat you like hell, you don't know whether you have the gas option or not. It's always, always a negative experience, except, again, rare when I bring a car in. And based on your type of formula, I would, if I wanted to, is to start a rental car agency and do it right. Not only would I agree with that, but what I find really funny is that, again, the, the, one of the worst experiences I ever had was with Hertz, right? And I was at a place where all the car rental locations were in one building, so I just walked, I walked like 50 feet over to uh, Avis. And Avis, not only did they go out of their way to treat me well, but they, at that point they didn't have to. As long as they didn't essentially stab me in the eye, I would have been thrilled, right? So I am a huge Avis fan for life now because all they did was just treat me a little bit better than Hertz did. My thanks to Peter Shankman, entrepreneur and author. His most recent book, Using Great Service to Create Rabid Fans, it is available on Amazon. Just to let you know, I am not paid any promotional fees for talking to Peter or any other guests. Shirley Tom has joined us for this week's Profiles of the Week. And Shirley, to say she's a legend in this community would uh, be less than an exaggeration. She's been working in the broadcasting industry for over 45 years. She has written a few books on sales. And her latest one, Life is a Sales Job. You can't score a touchdown unless you swing the bat. I scratch my head at that too. But in my interview with Shirley, she will explain what she meant by that. I've said in my book and anybody who I talk to that if you can't sell, small business is not for you. No one can sell your product or service like you. And if you abdicate that to someone else, particularly early on, I think you will suffer. 
to the degree that you won't even succeed. Shirley is here to help you think about that, the aspects of selling, and how you can become a better salesperson. Everyone sells, and some get paid for it. So why not look into the possibilities of a career in sales? So you have been in sales your whole life. Yep. And uh, what got you into sales? Um, well, I unexpectedly became a single parent, and my daughters and I were doing just fine as I worked in a uh, support position at a radio station. And one day my daughter Shannon said, Mom, can I take piano lessons? And I said, I think we can manage that. And she says, but we don't have a piano. <laughs> I said, good point. So I looked around the station and said, who around here is making money? And I saw those really happy-go-lucky salespeople that didn't seem to have any particular talent. And I thought, they tell me those guys make money. And so I said, I want to be on their team. <laughs> and so I changed the way I was behaving. So <laughs> did any idea of being in a sales position occur to you before that? Nope. Or that the research that you said you just did, you looked around and said, wow, these people are doing well. What do you do? And you found out they were in sales. Yeah. Okay, so then you also, in the subtitle of your book, um, you have, you can't score a touchdown unless you swing the bat. Now, you're going to have to explain that just a little bit. I was my grandson's little league coach. And for four years, I was his coach. And we established, he and I reestablished a great relationship. He's grown up now. We still go to ball games together. And a couple of years ago, he handed me a baseball. And he had written on the baseball, you can't score a TD if you don't swing the bat. And I looked at him and he laughed and he said, you taught me that. And what context did he mean that? He meant that basically you got, if you want something, you have to go after it yourself. You can't depend on others to make your life a success. And you think sales is really yes. a great path to do that? I, I do, because um, it doesn't limit the field. If you learn how to the basics of selling, and the number one basic is listening, if you learn the basics of selling, it can be applied to any product. A lot of people have fear of selling. Yeah. And they won't even take, that could be for someone else, not me. How do you get past that? Because um, people think that you have to know everything to be able to sell. That you have to push your agenda on people. I believe that if you just, well we've got two eyes, two ears, and one mouth. So we are basically built to listen. A person will tell you what they need if you will just observe and listen. And sales is simply responding. I'm talking to Shirley Tom, just taking a little break here. She is the author of Life is a Sales Job. You can't score a touchdown unless you swing the bat. When it comes to sales, I think that many people are intimidated and they have a fear of being rejected. I asked Shirley, how should someone deal with that? I've been told that my tombstone will say, get over it. <laughs> okay. And I believe that. What, what, is the, 
No is a two-letter word. Why does it have such an impact? We're told no from the time we're toddlers. You toddle over to a coffee table and you see a pretty vase and you reach for it. Someone's going to tell you no. What are you going to do? Are you going to cry and walk away? Or are you going to go, hmm? I mean, next time, I yeah. have to do it when she's not in the room. <laughs> yes. yes. That's where you figure out. You or figure you learn out. from that. Yes, that you learn. That certain, I mean, you're going to be told no. So what are you going to do about it? When uh, someone uh, says no, or when someone says, they might say, not yet, uh, that say, I don't need landscaping right now because I'm living in a condo. I don't have a yard. I may know someone who owns a house. I think that's a great place to end the interview. We've been talking to Shirley Tom, and she is the author of a book, Life is a Sales Job, You Can't Score a Touchdown Unless You Swing the Bat. You can visit her website at lifeisasalesjob.com, all one word, lifeisasalesjob.com. And in there, you will find more about her services, such as goal setting and sales training. I'm a big believer in experience, and I would go to the people who have had experience doing anything, and particularly in the realm of sales. Eighty percent of small businesses fail. One of the major reasons why the failure rate is so astonishingly high is that too many people buy into a long-held myth. Follow your passion and the money will follow. Myth number eight. This idea is so prevalent that it seems to be included in every business success story you ever read about or hear about. A few years ago, I saw an entrepreneur mother interviewed on a TV show and she was talking about how she built a home-based business into a very successful enterprise. She had been working as an attorney in a law firm in Portland, Oregon, and had taken six months off for maternity leave. As she was preparing for the baby's room, she began looking around at various baby stores for wall stencils, like animals, puffy clouds, birds, trees, etc. But she found that the stencil packages were scarce. She also found they were very overpriced. So she started her own mail-order stencil company, offering low-priced stencils to expectant mothers. By the end of the interview, the person interviewing her said, So, you followed your passion, and the money followed. The woman looked a little bit startled or taken back, and she said, Well, if that's what you think I said, the entrepreneur mother didn't have a passion for creating stencils before she started her own business. What she did have was a passion for being an entrepreneur. The inner entrepreneur came out in her. Stencil packages were just the opportunity she had taken on. She found a niche based on her own personal experience and took the step of solving a problem for thousands of other parents. The important thing to understand is just because you're a great artist, it doesn't mean that you can run an art gallery. Or just because your friends say you're a great cook, it really doesn't mean that you can run a successful restaurant. In conclusion, follow your passion. Maybe. Will the money follow? Not necessarily.
The following is just a short clip that airs on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, and this segment is called New Rules. His subject this past Friday night was on conspiracies. And finally, new rule, conspiracy theories have to go back to what they used to be. Fun little stories we would tell each other when we were high. (laughs) Space aliens crashed in Roswell. Hitler escaped to Argentina. Elvis is alive and working at the IHOP. (laughs) That's what conspiracy theories used to be. But now they're the ideology of the Republican Party. I never liked Rush Limbaugh, but I would take a return to 90s era ditto heads any day. Because it turned out that Rush was really just a gateway drug. (laughs) To which they eventually built up a tolerance and then needed something stronger. That was Glenn Beck, which led to Alex Jones. And now, Republicans, you're the Alex Jones party. There is literally nothing too stupid and conspiratorial that you will not swallow. Hillary running a child sex ring out of a pizza parlor. Sounds right. Obama's birth certificate, fake. This week, we found out that 83% of Republicans either definitely believe or are unsure whether five million people voted illegally in the last election. Something Trump just completely made up. This isn't about ideology anymore. Trump has none anyway. When he decided to run, he didn't brush up on conservatism by studying Buckley and Reagan. And this isn't about actual Republicans either. Those guys are gone. George Bush the first quit the NRA in 1995 when some gun nuts called the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms Jackbooted thugs. Bush said it deeply offended his sense of decency and honor. But when Alex Jones says children fake their own deaths at Sandy Hook, it doesn't deter Trump from telling him, your reputation is amazing, I'll not, I will not let you down. The latest thing, Trump, is this nonsense about the FBI spying on him. There was no spy. It was just the Bureau checking out whether someone on the Trump campaign was communicating with Russia, based on the tiny fact that everybody in the Trump campaign was communicating with Russia. It's what the FBI does. Investigation. It's in their name. But Spygate? There's literally nothing, and that is so alarming, because one way we measure the health of a society is by how conspiratorial it is. Communist countries, Arab dictatorships, those places you could always sell anything because there was no trust in the institutions. Republicans, that's what you're doing to this country. The only answer is that more sane people have to vote than insane people in every election. So tell your sane friends that the midterms are the most important election of their lives and tell your conservative friends that climate scientists are working with the Clintons to slip a chemical into the air ducts at polling places that will turn everyone who votes gay. That's Bill Maher with Real Time on HBO. That's all the time we have for this edition of Voices of Experience. My thanks to Peter Shankman, Shirley Tom, and Bill Maher for helping keeping me sane during these turbulent times, and to Robert F. Kennedy for continuing to be such an inspiration to me and millions of others across the United States and the globe. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer of Voices of Experience. If you'd like to talk to me about anything regarding this show, my phone number is 206 459 
206-459-5536. That's 206-459-5536. Have a great rest of the week.